0: Amen. Our hope is in Christ. Amen and amen. Hey, I can't imagine, I don't know about you, but I cannot honestly imagine my life apart from the church of Jesus. I I can't. And listen, I know the church has, has gotten some stuff wrong at times. I know the church has wounded different ones of us, me being included at times. But when the church is acting and behaving the way Jesus wants his church to act and behave, there's nothing like it in the world. And I can't imagine the last two weeks of my life without you loving on us and caring for us the way that you have. I just have to say, Lori already said it, I'm going to say it again, thank you. For the way you've prayed for us, cared for us. Some of you may not know, my mother passed away two weeks ago today. Um, And uh, so we've been mourning her death And in the middle of that, we were exposed to COVID and had to quarantine and and couldn't even bury her for uh, 11 days after her death. So it's been a a hard two weeks, but it's been made um, survivable by you and the way you've loved us, the way you've cared for us, whether it be meals or calls or texts, Facebook posts, you've done it all and you've been so wonderful to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, over the last couple of weeks, We've gone through a lot of pictures um, of mom and our family and different things. And I just gotta tell you, I found this one picture of, my, of me and my, bro- my older two brothers. I don't even think I showed this to you, Dean, but our other brother, David, and I'm, I love him, therefore I'm not gonna show you the picture. This is a blackmail worthy picture from about 1980 or 1981. And he looked like he stepped right off the screen from the brand new MTV, as the kids say. And uh, he's wearing, no kidding, he's wearing like short, well, I should probably even tell you, but uh, he's wearing some uh, fabulous uh, fashion, uh, 80s fashion, right? I mean, red bandana, uh, short, too short, jean shorts, and red socks, a little red hat. I mean, like he was in the flock of seagulls or something. That's gonna be lost on some of you. But anyway, I sent it to him as, as only little brothers can do and say, "Bah, bye um, but it got me started thinking in this sort of 80s sort of mode. I'm a kid of the 80s. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. And one of the, there's all this different pop culture from the 80s that I remember. And it started me down this path as I'm also studying what we're going to be talking about today in the book of Titus. I started thinking about all this different pop culture. I thought about this movie. And now I couldn't see it. It was an R-rated movie. It came out, but everybody knew about it. It was a movie called uh, American Werewolf in London. And it supposedly had all this wonderful special effects. If you were to watch it today, you'd probably go, that's not that special, right? But at the time, it was phenomenal. And I was, I think I was nine at the time. Two years later, uh, Michael Jackson comes out, 1983, with an album that changed the game, right? It was called Thriller. And he used the same director from this American Werewolf in London, same makeup artist, and if you remember the short-form video he did, he turns into what? Remember, anybody? He turns into a werewolf. But right before he turns into a werewolf, he tells his girlfriend, I'm not like other guys. That was like the understatement of the century. Uh, And maybe it had a double meaning, I don't know. But... um, he turns into this werewolf and, and the special effects, his hands start changing his feet change and he turns into this scary monster that wants to eat you, right? Now obviously, I don't believe in such things as werewolves. They don't, I don't believe they exist. However, the Bible does talk about certain people who try to uh, change the gospel of Jesus. Paul calls it another gospel. The Bible does talk about people who turn away from the truth of God's word. And they do stir up trouble in the church and in families. And Jesus, of all people, called those people wolves. Now, a werewolf, the thing about a werewolf is you don't know who they are, supposedly, in, in, the, in the story, right? You, don't, you could be sitting next to somebody who's a werewolf. But when the, when the moon comes out, supposedly, they, you know, they turn into a, a werewolf. Well, what's interesting is today, it's a little bit of what we're going to talk about, werewolves. That's the title of my message. It's a strange one. But but the bottom line is, Paul talks to Titus and shares with him that there may be people in the church who wanna turn you away from the true gospel of Jesus, and they want you to be believing something else, and you may not even know who they are necessarily until they open their mouths and they begin to say something and you look at their lives a little more intently and you see that they're different than the kind of people that Pastor Elvis talked about last week. Jesus said this in Matthew seven fifteen. he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So he gives us this first warning, uh, and that's basically a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. Last week, Pastor Elvis talked to you about the why of the book, and if you remember, we did an introduction the week before, and we talked about the who, what, when, where, and why of Titus. So he speaks of the why. Why did Paul write this letter to this man named Titus? Why did he leave him on this island in the middle of the Mediterranean called Crete? He had a purpose, right? And he he tells us the purpose in Elvis's message. I'm going to share a few things from Elvis's message last week because it gives us context to what I'm going to say today. They really go together, okay? So look with me, if if you will, in the Bible. first uh, In Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 5, He gives us very clearly, simply, the why of the book. He says, this is why, right, it's the why. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what's the why of the book? So that Titus can put things in order. Uh, Clearly, there is an order. He said, I've directed you. So Paul has given Titus a specific thing that he wants him to do, a specific assignment, a specific way to do it. Uh, and it's undone on Crete. It's been started, but it's left undone. So he says, Titus, put these things in order and get some help. You can't do this on your own. And I can't, another can't imagine. I can't imagine pastoring a church without elders. You can't do this alone. We need people who who are with us and around us and serve with us, pastors and elders that that love and do this work with us. It's wonderful. So he says, appoint elders so that you have some help. This is what I want you to do. So uh, Paul writes to two guys. He writes to Timothy in these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then he writes to this guy, Titus. We call these three books together the pastorals. Because it's kind of like this training manual for being a pastor. How, how do you choose good elders? How do you pray for people? How do you care for the flock? How do you shepherd them? How do you love them as a pastor? And so these three books are very important. And it's one of the reasons we called the, the series Foundations. How do we know how to create the found, build the foundation that, that God wants for his church? So I want to just mention a few of the characteristics that Elvis talked about last week. By the way, this list of characteristics of elders... This is how we choose elders, right? We didn't come up with a, a new way. We didn't come up with something better because there's not anything better. The Lord has laid out through the Apostle Paul and to these men and to us, how do you pick great leaders? This is it. And this is how we choose our elders and our leaders here at South City. So go down this list with me just real quick from uh, Pastor Elvis's message last week. First thing he says is that these men should be above reproach, right? There should be no scandal around their name. They're just good men, they're above reproach. They should be the husband of one wife. I want to just stop here for a moment and and speak a few things about who we are as a church that you need to know. We believe to be a husband of one wife, you need to be a man, (laughs) okay? That's called uh, complementarianism, if you want to get fancy, right? complementarianism means that we believe that God in his word has ordained what the leadership of the church should look like, what the leadership of a family should look like. See, we believe men and women were created equally, beautifully. And there are many things men cannot do that women can do so much better. And there's many things that men can do that women cannot do. And so the idea of complementarianism is that they complement each other, Right? And when it's working together, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Some great churches have leaders, uh, have women as elders. And the concept is they believe that maybe this was some sort of cultural moment. That Paul didn't really mean that they should just be husbands of one wife, that, that they can be women. That maybe just it was a cultural thing back then. Listen, it's, it's our belief as, as your elders that God would not take that chance on the elders. Uh, establishment, the foundation of what the church is supposed to be. We believe that he spoke exactly what he wanted, and that's why we follow it. That's why we are who we are. And I wanted to make that clear in this uh, text. It's, it's a big deal. And we believe it honors God to follow his word the way it is written. So we, husband of one wife, uh, we, you know, the next thing is that they're, chil- they're children of these godly men are believers in Jesus, that they honor Jesus with their lives. Pastor Elvis did a great job saying that's the first test of leadership. When our children love the Lord and they're living for the Lord, that's a good test on you as a leader. You are a good leader, right? And so that's one of the tests that we see in this. They're not, they shouldn't be arrogant men. They shouldn't be quick-tempered men. They shouldn't uh, be drunk or inebriated in any way. Right? They should live sober lives. They shouldn't be violent, picking fights. They need to be people of peace. They, they shouldn't be greedy or lovers of money. They should be hospitable, caring men. They should be lovers of good. They should be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that list, I go, whoo, that's, that's a tall order, really, Right? And based on our introduction from two, week, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, however many it's been, it's been a while. Uh, how do you find these kind of men on the kind of place that Crete is? That's the question. Remember how, what an awful place it was? They're liars, uh, they're womenizers. It's a bad place, this island of Crete. So I started going, Lord, how do, you, how do you find these kind of men? Well, the thing to know about the mission of God and our mission, you know, Jesus gave us the great commission in Matthew 28, it's called the great commission, right? That means it's his mission and it's our mission. But the thing we have to remember is it was his mission a long time before it was our our mission, (laughs) right? So God is already in the business of changing people's hearts and lives on the island of Crete. Look with me in Acts chapter two, remind you of this amazing moment Where the Holy Spirit of God comes, he falls on the church, and people start speaking in languages that they didn't know. It was miraculous. It was an incredible moment. And the Bible tells us there were people from all over the known world, including Crete. Acts 2, verses 8 through 11. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, right? Those are people from the island of Crete, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own, lang- in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God is already at work on the island of Crete from Pentecost. These people who had come from Crete would have most likely heard also Peter preach that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember we know that from chapter two here that 3,000 people come to know Jesus that day, right? It could have been Cretans as well. And the idea is that maybe those Cretans went back to Crete, begin to spread the gospel of Jesus. And what happens when the gospel of Jesus is made known to people? People begin to change, right? They begin to leave who they were and become who they're going to be in Jesus. And so that's the hope that's happening on Crete. Not only that, but Paul had been there before. He leaves Rome from his first Roman imprisonment, and he stops on Crete. And we don't know how long, we have very little uh, mentioned here, but we know he was in Crete. And he does what Paul does. He preaches in the synagogue. He he helps people come to know the Lord. He establishes them in the faith. He gathers these church communities on the island of Crete. He gets started, but he left some stuff undone. And that's why he needs Titus to help wrap it up and appoint elders, right? So the thing we need to know is that God had started his mission on Crete long before Paul wanted to go to Crete. God had a mission, and then he empowered and gave Paul, Titus, and others uh, the anointing to continue that work. So God's changing lives. People have come to know Christ. It's that group of men that Titus needs to choose this kind of people from, right? Uh, So then it's it's been a while since Paul's been there, and so the hope is that these men are growing in who they are in Christ, and Titus has some guys to choose to choose that look a little bit like Paul's list in the beginning of Titus. Second thing I want you to see is that, as we get into our message today, is that Paul's gonna show us a huge contrast. Everybody say the word contrast, contrast. Contrast is something that you can tell the difference of very quickly. White, black, oh I can tell, day, night, right? You You can see it and go, well that's not that. That's what Paul is doing here as he he gives this uh, assignment to Titus. You need to know who are God's men that you can use for leaders and who are not. It needs to be very clear. And so today's uh, message is really about contrast. There's a stark contrast between the the men that God is transforming into his image and raising up as great leaders and the men who are not, the men who are living for themselves. But the thing you have to remember as we read this. All of these men are in the church. <laughs> it's not just like these bad men are out there somewhere and they hate the church. No, these are men within the churches of Crete. Let's read our text together. Titus 1, verses 9 through 16. This is our main text this morning. He must hold firm, and when he says he, he's speaking of these elder candidates, okay? Okay. Paul's writing to Titus and he's talking about all these elders. He's saying, if he's going to be an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and to also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Uh, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching For shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. (laughs) Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's our text we're gonna break down this morning. Pray with me that God would help us to understand it. Father, we love you. Lord, what a wonderful time as the family of God, as a family of families, to worship you, to lay down our burdens, to be strengthened by you and one another and to learn of your word. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to all truth. Help us to break this text down and truly understand what you were saying uh, from Paul to Titus to the Cretans and what you would say to us also as a result. Help us to take it in, to learn it, and to be more like you because of it. Father, I pray that you increase in this moment and in this place and that I decrease, that you would be made known, Lord, and we would be changed because of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I, what I did, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but I, I stole one of Pastor Elvis' verses, okay? Verse 9 was in his text last week because it is what, what's called a conjunction. It's going to help us. It's, it's, it's going to help us get between his text and my text today. And it really does state the main consideration of the text today. We're talking today about doctrine, Okay? That's what we're talking about. So read verse 9 again. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He's got to be grounded. Remember we just did this series called Grounded? He's got to be grounded in the word of God. He's got to know it, love it. Not only that, he needs to be able to instruct in it, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. That's one of the jobs of elders. That's part of what we do. So that really does state kind of who we are and part of our role. Uh, when I was in my undergraduate degree working, I, I, uh, I read this book called The Art of War. Have you heard of that book? By Sun Tzu. It's, it was written in the fifth century. It's a pretty amazing book. The book is basically a book about war. How do you uh, attack enemies with wisdom? How do you, it's just a, it's really fascinating. What's happened is, is businessmen and other people have brought that book back from antiquity and use it for business because it kind of works. It's not unlike what Paul is saying to Titus here. The first thing he says to Titus is, and it's also one of the main things of the, the art of war, know your enemy. You gotta know who your enemy, why? Because if you treat, you know, it says, you, the saying that says you gotta keep your enemies close, right? Or your friends close and your enemies closer, I think it's the saying. Why? So that you know what they're going to do. You have an idea of what motivates them, what moves them, how you can mess with them to get certain results, how how they're going to move, and when are they going to move, and what's it going to look like? And so this is the same thing Paul's basically doing, saying, know your enemy, recognize him, and understand what he's about. So the first thing Titus needs to do in the message this morning is he needs to identify the enemy. Verse 10 this word for there's the conjunction for there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party he's given all these glowing uh, examples of godly men but then he gives us the contrast of the other guys that you shouldn't choose as leaders why because well first of all there's many (laughs) there's a bunch of them in the church for there are many of them well, how do you describe them? How do you know who they are? Well, they're insubordinate, empty talkers. They're deceivers, especially those of the uh, circumcision party. You remember that phrase we've used quite a bit? Especially in our series on Galatians. Galatians is Paul's sort of masterwork uh, speaking against these uh, Judaizers and circumcision party who are adding to the gospel of Jesus. They're adding the uh, works and rules instead of just uh, trusting that our faith is in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so this is this is important here. He needs to recognize uh, the enemy, identify who they are. Uh, do you notice that a lot of these characteristics are literally the exact opposite of the good guys? I mean, isn't that what he said? He says down here in verse six, in Titus verse six, chapter one. These good guys, the elder qualities, are not to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And yet down here, the bad guys, the first thing he says is that they they are insubordinate. (laughs) They're the exact opposite. They're the anti, right? They're the other side of the good guys. There's these other things that he says. He says that uh, they should be... uh, Shouldn't be empty talkers. You you ever met an empty talker? I remember my daughter, when she was in, I don't know, kindergarten, first grade, she had a kid in her class. I won't say his name. We'll say his name is Johnny. Um, But little Johnny used to tell lies like crazy. And I remember one day she said, Daddy, um, Johnny said he has a lion at home. I said, baby, Johnny's lying about his lion, right? He doesn't have a lion, there's not a lion in Johnny's home. You, you just can't take everything Johnny says. He's an empty talker. He keeps saying things and you can't believe any of it. You know people like that? Well, that's who, that's one of the descriptions of these, of these bad guys. But the good guys, Paul says they should be above reproach. You would never think that of the good guys. It's the opposite. The, the other thing he says is that the bad guys are deceivers. They're actually willfully trying to deceive but the good guys, Paul says, are trustworthy. You can know them. You can know their heart. You can know their motive, and it's good. So these, these guys that are, that are not good guys, these guys who are the werewolves in the church, they're the opposite of the good guys. They, they honestly care more about uh, people's opinion and the rules of men than the grace of God. That's what they care about and they're confusing a lot of people. Second thing that Paul has to do, after identifying the enemy, he needs to respond to him. He needs to do something with them. right? Look with me, verse 11. Paul says to Titus, they must be silenced. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, A prophet of their own uh, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, uh, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You know, one of the things we see in this postmodern reality of the church, I know you see it, I know you've noticed it, is that we've become very ecumenical, We've become very friendly with every denomination and every church and, and surely you just add this and we'll add that and we'll, it's just this big gumbo of belief. That's not good. Paul says that we need to understand what is the word of God. What is the doctrine that the word of God teaches us and beware of it. We've become weak. We've become weak in, in the church and we, we don't know how to honestly Defend what we believe and, and this may sound harsh, to silence someone or to rebuke sharply, but that's exactly what Paul's saying that Titus needs to do. You know, my girls, all three of them, Lori, Daisy, and Jovi, they love cotton candy. Wherever there's cotton candy, we're gonna be getting some cotton candy, right? Um, if that's all they ate, they would have no teeth, right? And they would ultimately die. Because cotton candy has zero nutritional value, right? It it doesn't do anything for your body. It's actually pretty bad for you. It's just sugar. Well, if we just continue to listen to messages, pastors, uh, TV preachers, and we don't know really what they represent doctrinally, we could just be eating cotton candy over and over and it's not going to do us any good. We need sustenance. We need the stuff that's going to grow our spirit from the word of God. We don't need false doctrine in the church. And, and listen, there's some great men who have stood against false doctrine in the word. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John. What about John? He was the disciple who, who loved Jesus. He was the disciple of love. And yet, First John, he has quite a, uh, some harsh things to say to false teachers. The half-brother of Jesus, Jude, has some harsh things to say to false teachers teachers, to these werewolves, if you will. First thing Paul says that we have to do in response to them is we have to silence them. In the Greek, the picture is muzzling a dog. You ever seen a dog in a muzzle? I mean, it could be the meanest dog in the world, but if it's muzzled, it can't bite you. It can bark at you, it can scare you to death, but it can't bite you. Paul says we need to shut them up. They need to be muzzled. They need to be silenced. That's what has to be done. Why? Because They're upsetting whole families, he says. Now we don't know if Paul's talking about whole church, house churches on Crete, or actual individual families. We're not sure which one he's speaking of, but it remains the same for both. False doctrine is like a cancer. It may not seem like a big deal at first, but then it begins to eat away at what really is good tissue. That's the same thing. When we believe things that are not true of the word of God, it begins to eat away of the things that are. Families begin to step back away from accountability, right? Husbands and wives begin to be pulled apart because they don't follow God's word to love one another and submit to one another and care for one another. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cancer that will kill any church and any family if we follow And believe in these false teachings. Jesus even sort of commends the church. Remember we did this series last year just before the pandemic uh, about these churches. These seven churches that we see in Revelation. One of those churches was the church at Ephesus. Look what Jesus said to that church. Revelation 2.2. Jesus says, you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Jesus says, listen, you've done a good job. You're not putting up with evil people who say they're one thing, but they're not really that. Who say they're apostles sent by me, but they're not. You don't put up with that evil. You don't put up with that false doctrine, and that's a good thing. So Paul knows that the influence of what is false destroys the body of Christ. So even though it seems harsh to make a judgment towards someone who says something that's not correct from scripture, God calls us to this type of judgment. He calls us to this type of sharp rebuke and silencing. That's the, the, the second thing. He says that they, they, their teaching is for shameful gain. In other words, and they're teaching what they should not teach. In other words, when they teach, they got an ulterior motive. I don't mean to be picking on TV preachers today, but how many of those guys have you seen asking for money? Or at least seen the little thing at the bottom of the thing. If you want to give, then we'll pray for you. It's like this weird. So many of these TV guys are false prophets. Many of them are. And you hear them asking for money for their new jet. Right? Literally. Millions and millions of dollars for a new jet so they can, you know, take the gospel of Jesus because they're so special. They're the only ones who can do it and they need a jet to do it. Are you kidding me? They're teaching what they shouldn't teach, and they're doing it with an ulterior motive for gain, shameful gain, Paul says. problem is they're more concerned with money and clout than they are the true gospel of Jesus, and we need to beware of their influence in our lives and in our church. So verse 12, Paul mentions this quote from this famous poet, right? He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, uh, lazy gluttons. And then he goes, this is true. <laughs> and I think it's, it's kind of funny to me. Paul, what are you saying, man? At first you go, is Paul making this huge generalization that everybody on Crete are, are lazy and liars and gluttons? and Like, is that a huge generalization? I, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of generalizations. Exhausted with generalizations in our country. Guess what, not every Democrat wants to burn down federal buildings and turn our country into a socialist, communistic country. Not every Democrat does, and not every Republican is a racist, crazy person who wants to storm the Capitol. But those generalizations are everywhere, aren't they? Most of us are more here than we are here or here. And when you read this, you kinda go, is Paul making a generalization to every person on Crete? No. Paul is speaking about these bad guys, if you will, these werewolves. That's who he's referring to. He's referring to these men that he's describing for Titus to know and to rebuke. So he says, uh, they should be rebuked sharply. Have you ever been rebuked sharply? If you had a loving mother and father, you probably did. Uh, I I remember the story of me in the fifth grade of course, I had to be the coolest kid, you know, there. And I remember I'm tapping my pencil on the desk, and the teacher goes, Drew? And I stopped my pencil. He says, don't, don't do that again. And I, I had to. At least in that moment, in my stupid little cool mind, I thought, I have to tap it one more time. I go, kink. He goes out to the principal's office, right? He gave, and I was mortified. That got me, like, I couldn't believe it. I was rebuked sharply, and I'm glad he did it. To this day, I remember it and I remember how disrespectful. And it's a great example I can use for my kids, right? So when they do that kind of thing, I can tell them I've done it too, you know? When you've been rebuked sharply, you kind of stand you up and you go, oh, I didn't, I, oh, okay. You hopefully learn something. It's something that's burned in your memory that you go, oh my goodness, okay. And that's what Paul's saying. They should be rebuked sharply. But why? Is it because Paul's just mean? Is it because he just really wants to get at these guys who are after these uh, people and upsetting these families? No. The heart of Paul and the heart of God is that we would all have good doctrine in our lives. We need to have healthy uh, doctrine in our lives. That's what he says. Look look here. He says in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's the reason to do it not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To be sound in the faith, the word sound literally is the same thing as healthy. He wants people to have lives of of grace and goodness, to have a healthy view of who God is and how much he loves them, how much he wants to bless their lives. And can I tell you, any of us who are doing something against God, Any of us who are living in a certain way that that the way we live or something we said or something we're believing is anti to the Bible, we're believing bad doctrine. It's that simple, every single thing. You're like, say, say, what are you talking about? Like, man, there was a time in my life I thought, how in the world could God ever use me? Have you ever thought that? I'm such a mess, I've made so many mistakes, I'm such an idiot, and I continue to make mistakes. God, how in the world? That's bad doctrine because the good doctrine says Jesus paid it all. Every mistake, every broken thing that you've ever done, he's washed it away. That's good doctrine. How could I be loved? Why does God care? Will God answer my, all these things that we, we think in our, our minds and it's bad doctrine. God wants us to have sound, healthy doctrine that we live by. So that we can know him, be loved by him, and love him with our lives. The bad doctrine these guys were saying, this circumcision party, they were saying, because we're God's people, right? Because we're uh, descended from Abraham, the Israelites, God's chosen people. You know, that's why we're his people. And, and we, of course, we talked about this in Galatians, that even all the way back in Genesis, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, The reason Abraham uh, was his faith, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's what saved Abraham, his faith. In the same way, when we believe in faith that Jesus died on the cross for us and God raised him on the third day, we believe we have faith, all of a sudden, guess whose sons and daughters we become? Yes, God's, yes, Abraham's. We're in Abraham's lineage at that point. It's not because of circumcision. Right, it's not because of uh, descent, culture. It's because of faith. That's called a Jewish myth, by the way. When he says they, they're, just, they're just, they're completely undone with, with Jewish myths. They're devoting themselves to these myths. Another one was about cleanliness. And the thought was, you can only be clean if you wash your hands and body in a certain way, ceremonially. Paul says, listen. If you are truly clean, it's been because Jesus has cleansed you, not because you got it right and you did something perfect. That has nothing to do with your cleanliness. And Jesus even goes into this explanation that doesn't have to do with, with these things. Uh, Matthew 15, verse one and two says, then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Drop down to verse 8. Matthew 15, 8 says, and Jesus is speaking this of the Pharisees. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus is saying, listen, listen. It's all about Jesus. Paul's trying to teach this to Titus. It's all about Jesus. It's not the external things that matter as much as the internal things. And yet the Pharisees were only worried about external things. It's not what matter. Doesn't matter what goes in. It matters what comes out. These are Jewish myths. So Paul has told Titus, you got to identify the enemy. You've got to respond to the enemy or rebuke the enemy. But you also got to see the heart of the enemy and see the consequences of believing bad doctrine. It's one of the things we do when we follow these things. Verse 15, Paul says, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You know, to be truly cleansed, clean, forgiven, purified. It's not what you do. It's not some work that you bring to salvation. God doesn't need your works. You can't add anything to it. And as soon as you add something to Jesus, you lose Jesus. That becomes another gospel. It's grace alone. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we just confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what Jesus does. He truly cleanses us from the inside out. But, but people who don't believe, people who don't believe, they, they don't see anything pure, right? The verse says, to the pure all things are pure because Jesus has cleansed us and it's pure. But to unbelievers, nothing is pure. I've got a friend um, that I pastored in Nashville. And uh, I've been really kind of blown away at how her, her life has gone from what I thought was fairly orthodox faith to off the deep end, so to speak. Nothing is sacred to her. Nothing. Nothing is holy. Nothing. And it's, it's, everything is profane, even though she doesn't see it that way. Even with her children, it breaks my heart. To the defiled, to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You know, I was thinking about this. I couldn't help but think about the season in my life when I was really, and, and this is an ongoing thing for the believer, trying to honor the Lord with my life. And I remember at a point in some bad doctrine in my mind going, God, I don't know how I can follow you. My mind is so full of so much sin. My eyes have seen so much, God, it's hard for me to not see it. It's hard for my mind to not remember it. It's hard for my heart not to consider it. And I learned that, you know what, even, and the way I put it is that it feels like my innocence is lost, it's gone. But the beauty of God is that he can restore your innocence. God can restore your innocence. Men, God can change those memories. He, he'll help you to forget them. Women, he can change those ideas and thoughts of your heart that are sinful. Romans twelve two says, don't be molded, don't be conformed into what this world says you should be, but instead, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God will transform you. He will give you your innocence again when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds by the grace of Jesus. And I want to close by this. Last verse. Paul says that these people, these people that that Titus should not consider as leaders, you'll know them because they say one thing and they live another. You ever done that? I mean, that's my testimony. I sat in this building many years ago, and I said a lot of things, and my life did not live up to it. I didn't care. I was a fake. I was a hypocrite. And since those days, God has been restoring, redeeming my life, giving my innocence back, changing me from who I was more into the image of Jesus by his grace. But there was a season that I said one thing and I did another. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And when we do this, this is how God feels about it. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Frank, can I just tell you, what makes you a Christian is not this label that you give yourself when you go, I'm a Christian. It's not your church attendance. It's not your family's connection to the church or some ministry. It's not even what you say about yourself. It's how you live. That's what speaks of what you believe. How we live tells people what we believe. When people look at your text, your browser history, when people look at your checkbook, how you care for your family, your spouse, when people uh, were able to see you in the darkness with no one else around, would they go, that guy loves Jesus. Man, this is a family that loves Jesus. Would they say that of you? Because how we live proves what we believe. This word detestable, I I knew what it meant, but I thought I'm going to look it up and just get a good understanding to make sure. It means deserving intense dislike, hatred, being loathed, despicable, despised, when we say one thing about God and, we, and our lives are another, God hates it. It's detestable to him. We make God sick, literally. So Paul tells, us, tells Titus about this leadership decision. You need help. You need elders. Here's what the good guys look like. Here's what the bad guys look like. But Paul's not just speaking to leaders. Can I just tell you this morning? We don't, get to, we don't get to opt out. You don't get to go, oh, this is for pastors. I can check this one off the list. <laughs> no, it's for us too. It's for believers in Jesus too. Can I ask you this question and for you to honestly consider it? Which list do you find your life on? When you read through these lists of godly men to be considered as elders or this other list of men that should not be considered, where do you find your life more because if it is on this list that is uh, what paul saying don't choose from these guys can i just tell you god's heart is that you have sound faith god wants to see you change he wants you to trust him and to know him i also think it's important for believers in jesus to hold firmly to the word of god to be able to teach to be able to talk about, to be able to understand what is good doctrine. When I say that, church, can you do that? Can you save yourself? I know what good doctrine is. Can you? Can you save yourself? I know what bad doctrine is. When I see it, when I hear it, I go, "Uh uh-uh, no, that's not good. Can you? If you can't, that's why you're here. If you can't, that's why we go to Citigroup to talk about it and deal with it. And we look through the questions and we pray together and we understand and we learn. If you can't, that's why we disciple one another to help us understand what it means to live in good doctrine and not be on this other list. We don't want to make God sick with who we are. We want to honor him with all that we are. You know, when I think about good doctrine, this verse just came to my mind. I probably use it so often, but it's good. (laughs) So I'll probably keep using it. Ephesians. Chapter 1, I'm going to show it to you. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. This is his prayer for the church in Ephesus. A spirit of wisdom. See, wisdom is when we actually live based off of what we know. We let what we know affect how we live. That's what wisdom is. Paul says, "I hope you have a spirit of wisdom and of the revelation in the knowledge of him, of Jesus. The revelation that it's changed your life. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you see it. You get it, that you may know what the hope what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's what God wants unbelievers to know. He wants them to have sound faith, to know Jesus, and to have good life. And we can't have it if we believe false doctrine. He wants us to be wise, to know Christ, to have our eyes enlightened, to get it. He wants us to know the hope that God has called us to, to know the riches we have in the family and this inheritance in him, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power because of his might. I'm going to close. Listen, it's important for us, even as just believers, maybe you'll never be a pastor, but just as believers, can you recognize your enemy? Can you recognize people who are not leading you to to good doctrine? They're trying to put one over on you. By the way, Paul's talking about people in the church. We have to beware. We have to be on top of it. We have to understand the difference. Identify your enemy, and when you recognize him, respond. Silence and rebuke. That's what God is calling us to do, and know his heart. See that the, the outcome of a life lived in bad doctrine is not a good thing. It'll wreck your life and it makes God sick. So let us be a people who does what we say. That we, our lives are just true. We say one thing and guess what? We do it. And God forgive us when we've said something and we've lived something else. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're saying one thing but really you're not that thing. Come down here in repentance before a holy God and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to live for you. I want my life to be what you want it to be. I don't want to make you sick, God. Lord, make us a people who say that we love you, that we live for you, and then we actually do it. Pray with me this morning. Father, how good you are to us. We love you. We thank you for the privilege, Father, you've given us to be together this morning. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the body of Christ. But, Lord, we hear this warning that even in the body of Christ, there can be people that lead us astray. There can be people that turn their back on your word and on you. And, Lord, may we stand up for truth so that your, your word would be pure here. That we would love you, God. And we would not just say it, but that we would live it. Father, thank you for this day. For this word. changes because of it, in Jesus' name. Amen.